0: to the Child Life Cooperative Podcast, a place where child life professionals share their real and honest stories. I bet you guys are kind of surprised because it's not my husband's voice doing the announcement. Today, we are going to try and kind of change things up a little bit, and we are going to have more of a dialogue and discussion of some real stories based on questions that you guys have asked. And today, I'm so excited to introduce my co-host, Danielle. Fleckenstein. Hi Allie, Hi. I'm so glad to be back. Hello. <laughs> it's so good to have you back. Um, we're really excited. We've been taking a look at some of the few questions that we're going to answer today. We probably are not going to have time to mm-hmm. answer all of them. Um, but in 25 minutes or less, we're going to go through some of the things that you guys have wanted to talk about. Starting with Miss um, Chris Lynn Lilly Brown talked about how do we prioritize with all the different patients, especially mm-hmm. for you, Danielle, working in an ER where you may have as many as how many a day? Would you Sometimes
1: say? 30 to 35 patients. Right. in shift. Um, Just crazy. I know, and I was thinking it's so cool kind of that where we both come from different areas mm-hmm. to where although prioritization for child life is pretty universal, but it looks different in each area too. Um, what are things that... You look for when you prioritize for your patients in the clinics.
0: I think it's so true what you're saying of our places, our our places that we work Mm -hmm. are so different. um, Because oftentimes with clinic, I can see a schedule that day. And so I know, oh, so-and-so is coming in today and he's really been struggling with his port access. I better make sure that I'm available. And then I also know that Miss little miss mary is coming Mm -hmm. in today and she has been having a horrible time with her medications we're going to do some medical play with medications so i think that in itself i can kind of have an an idea for how the day is
1: going to go but then even then i mean things pop up right you get a referral a donation comes in totally special event yes kind of throws you for a loop sometimes right
0: and I love one of your stories, too, that you've talked about when you've done, like, special visitors, yes. to
1: Easter. Yes. <laughs> Easter last year. Can you just
0: describe that situation? Well, actually,
1: the funny thing is it happened this year again, too. Oh, um, great. We had, uh, so our hospital has one child life specialist that covers our weekend days, so one on Saturday and one on Sunday, and I cover Sundays. Easter's on Sunday. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. every year we're lucky enough for our um, – sheriff's department to come in and they bring the easter bunny around for the kiddos and this is the second year in a row we had a referral uh at the same time that was really important it was Mm -hmm. an adult referral where it was actually a bereavement situation which i know we'll talk about in a little Mm -hmm. bit but i had to really prioritize of what's what's going on and at the same time the floor the pediatric floor was calling for um help for a patient Now, they needed more so some normative activity for this patient. We didn't have a volunteer. So in my mind, I'm like, okay, how can I handle this right now? So what I actually did is because I felt like I had, it's more important to look at what you have going on, assess the situation, what do I have control over, and how can I get help from other people? Mm -hmm. And what I did was I utilized my resources, which our ER at the time did not have a lot of kiddos in, which we were really thankful for at that time. But one of our techs was able to help facilitate the visit of the Easter Bunny with the kiddos after I kind of prepped him how to go around. Oh, that's a really good idea. While I went to the referral and I told the floor, I would check on the kiddo that they needed some activities for after I was done with the bereavement referral and finishing up with the Easter Bunny. So hmm. it, was, it was a lot to handle, but really you have to look at what is in the most need of an actual child life specialist, which, uh, I mean, it's most important in bereavement situations. Right. Definitely. Then, even though special events are really important as well, because all the children on the floor are in the hospital during holiday, that could be very important to them. Making sure they still get visits from the Easter Bunny. Okay, who can I, you know, delegate this to? Um, who's capable, who knows what the floor looks like. Um, Mm -hmm. Just fast thinking and figuring out how do I delegate.
0: Absolutely. I think something that I've also learned is that we can't ever underestimate the power of debriefing. Yes. Like maybe we weren't necessarily to be in two places at once Mm -hmm. and do both blood draws at the same time. Mm -hmm. But perhaps it looks like going back afterwards and then doing medical play. Mm -hmm. Or um, I've now become kind of... custom to providing medical play tools like a tourniquet or um, the different medical supplies to the parents and educating them Mm -hmm. on how they can continue that debriefing once they're home and trying to help equip them with a coping plan afterwards. Because I think it is so hard Mm -hmm. when you are just one person and there are so many different immediate needs at hand. So I I think you're exactly right. Utilizing your resources is like the huge phrase that is stuck in my mind when it comes to prioritizing.
1: Right. And I think sometimes you don't have time to do your preparation or you're getting in. Unfortunately, they'll call, hey, Child Life, we have a kid who's screaming and we Mm -hmm. need you to fix it. Totally. (laughs) So a lot of times you don't have that situation where you have time to prep the child. You're literally prepping during the procedure. And then after it's more so explaining what that test was, what that procedure was, mm-hmm. what the purpose of it was for, um, and then he, being able to kind of do some medical play after to help help the child process what happened. Right, totally. Which preparation is a great segue,
0: too, to our next question about, like, how much prep is too much prep? And, like, I feel like this is such an interesting thing, especially Mm. with VCUGs, um, which is when a catheter is inserted and then the bladder is filled with contrast, and then essentially the kid is asked to then pee on the table during the x-ray. It's so unnatural. Right, totally, especially for these young kids that are getting Mm -hmm. potty trained, so that they can tell if there's any that's happening a reflux, um, with the, with the bladder. But that especially mm-hmm. you walk into those rooms and you're like, okay, so how much do I share? Like, do I tell them this whole process right from before or do I do it more like step by step?
1: Mm-hmm. Do you have any stories that come
0: to your mind immediately with that?
1: Actually, I do, but not so much with VCGs, but with enemas. Ooh, (laughs) Which is similar. Totally
0: terrible. We have to
1: do, uh, unfortunately, a decent amount of enemas in our ER. And Mm -hmm. it is, like, especially when it comes to areas that are more private areas for for Mm -hmm. children. And talking about that, kind of, for me, I just talk about the elephant in the room. And I bring a kind of humor into the into the room of, you know, our hospital's really silly, and we talk a lot a lot about silly things like poop and peeing, and that's just what we do here. Um, oh, I like it. Yeah, that's and, awesome. like, some of our providers are like, you know, we just, we do silly things here. Mm-hmm. Um, same with, like, IV starts when, we, you know, we just turned your hand into a juice box. How silly is that? Um, kind of trying to normalize it for them, um, or, sorry, normalize it for them to make it not such a scary or intimidating thing or awkward thing. Um, but especially for enemas, what I try and help uh, alleviate the anxiety sometimes by explaining that honestly, what the, what we have to do is put a special medicine into your bottom to help soften that poop because that poop is what's making your tummy hurt. And it kind of helps to tell them that this tube that's going in um, to their bottom is actually smaller than a lot of the poops that they have. Oh, um, that would be like less if you th- than you Yeah, like, <laughs> I mean, granted, I mean, I haven't had a child that was like, oh, yeah, like, so excited about this. Right, um, right. But when you kind of talk about it in that way, it makes it a little bit more concrete. And then mm-hmm. talking about what we can do during it makes mm-hmm. it a lot easier to – have them come down to base level and then be able to talk to them in a rational way. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But yeah, things like enemas and VCUGs are a little bit hard and just kids with high anxiety in general, even for IV starts mm-hmm. when you know, I think it's helpful to go in and talk to the parents, obviously of yes, absolutely. finding their history. If they've experienced these Tests or procedures before, if this is an acute situation, a chronic situation, or just their temperament. I think a lot of people forget about temperament. Right. Some kiddos are just nervous in general Mm. and. Finding that information, the parents are such a vital part of it, and then kind of going off based on that. Yes, totally. Because I'll I'll admit, there's some kiddos, especially for IV starts, that I will give a certain amount of information, and other kids I'll give way more information because they're so comfortable.
0: Totally. I feel like assessment has to come hand in hand with preparation. Mm -hmm. Like You have to constantly be gauging the patient, looking at their eyes, looking at their body language, watching how... I mean, fidgety they get yes. or watching the way that they start to fixate on certain things and then learning when to just cut it off and how to transition to that coping plan on how to get through it. And speaking of parents, it made me think of this really classic preparation story, but I remember being in my surgical rotation during my internship. And my job was solely to prep, really, for, mm. for surgery. And so that was my job. And so <laughs> I pulled back the curtain of this one room, and I was like, Hi, my name is Allie. I'm here to help so that you know exactly what to expect for today. And the parents are like, Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> um, No need for that because our child knows that he is going to Disneyland today.
1: Oh, dear. <laughs>
0: he's going to take a ride down on his bed and then go through these two doors, and then he's going to meet Mickey Oh,
1: Ali! Like, oh, my gosh.
0: Is Mickey code for, like, all the, the tribes of the masked doctors with their scalpels? Like, this is horrible. And so that was a really interesting moment to, like, have them stop me dead in my tracks and be like, no need for prep. And, in fact, this is the prep that he's been given. Wow.
1: How did you handle that? So I ended up
0: um, being like, okay, okay, okay. Um, well, would you mind if I talked to you out in the hallway for a second? Mm-hmm. And then so then I tried to talk to the parents privately. And just tried to educate them as best as I could on just other things to consider. Mm -hmm. Like, if you're telling your child that they're going to Disneyland... Imagine if you're ever going to be able to go to Disneyland right. in the future when he's six, seven, eight, mm-hmm. like is it ever a family vacation that you think he's gonna want to go to again? And then just this idea of like lying to him and yeah. and trying to validate them in such a way, like you don't want to call them out and make them feel uncomfortable, right. like, oh, you're a horrible parent right now, but just helping them be more informed and really take into consideration like sometimes preparation is the most supportive thing. Mm -hmm. Even if you feel like your kid is naturally anxious, sometimes that's the reason why we do preparation is to help them feel less anxious because maybe in his mind, he's thinking worst case scenario. Absolutely. So,
1: and then that trust is gone.
0: Right? Totally. And will be really hard to rebuild. Exactly. That's so true. And so they actually didn't, ever really want me to say anything different, wow. like even with all of that. And I think um, that's just kind of what you have to think through as a child life specialist of like ultimately you do have yes. to yield to the parent do. and what they think. And so what we ended up doing was kind of an indirect prep where I just played with him and like got on his level. We started playing with cars and then I started to slide out my little mask, my anesthesia mask for him to start playing with and feeling and touching. Mm-hmm. And so in that sort of way, helping him understand um, just some of the medical equipment that he might see through play.
1: Um, but play is the way to go. It's it is. incredible, and it's it's so non-invasive. It's so familiar for children. Mm-hmm. Even mm-hmm. I can. Ha- I have a hard time seeing parents being really resistant on play. Right. Where I can see them being a little bit more resistant on more of the education part of it. That reminds me, our coordinator had a situation. Where she was talking to—our hospital does work with adult patients and children of adult patients. And I remember this um, patient in particular um, was—they were—it was going to be a bereavement situation. And the sibling was coming in, and uh, it was actually a suicide attempt. Mm -hmm. And the mother thought she should tell her son that he—his older brother was going to die from a stomach ache. And I remember— she didn't nice. want to yeah and that's there's so many aspects to that of i i understand that the mom was trying to protect her younger son from not wanting to know like that her older son was going through some issues and unfortunately was in a situation that he felt like he had no other option and tried to commit suicide and unfortunately they did end up having to um, take him off the ventilator, and he did end up passing, but our coordinator was really able to talk to mom and talk about what might happen if you do, you know, prep this child for thinking, okay, what if he in the future ends up having a stomach ache? Is he going to think that he's going to die too? Um, it's so important to look at the misconceptions that can come, and I think it's so hard for parents because you really have to try and go into their shoes and think of what they're experiencing, which is in, I can't even imagine what that mom was experiencing, mm-hmm. losing one son and then trying to protect her other son, Right. the fear, the anxiety, the heartbreak, right. the anger mm-hmm. that she was experiencing and she was just trying to protect her son. But mm-hmm. that's where we try and come in and try and educate of, in order to try and prevent any misconceptions or any mal, you know, maladaptations maladapt- for him. Um, to be able to be honest with him and not yeah. tell too much information. He doesn't doesn't need to know too much information, but yeah. to have simple concrete explanations of what happened, mm-hmm. um, it's hard. It's hard sometimes. That's a really unique
0: situation too. I think with bereavement, oftentimes we don't associate some of those really – Especially confusing um, and complicated ways to explain death Mm -hmm. to the the children and and teens involved, um, which can be really hard. I mean, I think of like overdoses Mm -hmm. that that I've had to prep kids for for bereavement, or I think about um, yeah the suicide aspect Mm -hmm. too, and how that can be so so difficult. I feel like bereavement is one of those things where it's never easy. No. Ever, I mean, and I think the day that it becomes easy is probably the day that you should reconsider what you're doing or if you're burned
1: out. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. I find myself, every referral I get where I know it's a bereavement situation, I feel the nerves coming in. Mm-hmm. I feel the anxiety. Mm-hmm. And I know that's okay And to embrace them. And I, I always give myself a pep talk um, yes. right before any bereavement situation I go into. Um I think a lot of times it's hard because you put a lot of responsibility on yourself. This is a crisis that this family will remember for the rest of their lives. And this quite possibly is the worst moment of, of their lives, unfortunately. And to walk into that situation and know on our end... The potential of what we're going to have to do in those situations. Right. It's a lot to carry.
0: It really is. And I've been noticing the more and more that I unfortunately work with bereavement is that there's such a difference between when the kids already know yes. versus the parents wanting you as the child life specialist to be the one to deliver the news. Yes. Like it just is such a, a different weight to be the one to... I remember the, just recently one of the most difficult cases I had um a fetal demise so the patient mm. um she delivered a stillborn and um the daughter was coming to visit and I think she was 6 and she shows up to the unit in her big sister t-shirt oh. like expecting to meet her baby brother and no one had told her anything oh. like they just told her that mom was in the hospital and so I had to be the person to tell her and it was just a horrible weight of responsibility, but yet at the same time, that responsibility, like she needs to be told and the parents are not at the place right now themselves to even get the words out. Right. And so this is a, a really big, important task for me to try to be the one to explain this to her, but also foster that trust and that safety with her parents to feel like she is safe to grieve alongside of them. Um, so it, it really is hard. And I think, um, I've been fortunate enough to have a lot of wonderful people to support, which I think mm-hmm. is the huge piece is as you're walking through bereavement that as the caregiver or as the child life specialist in this role that we can't do it on our own, that we need to connect with someone, some mentor, some Absolutely. Um, ch- former child life supervisor if you don't have one at your hospital or something like some sort of support system in that way I think is so huge because then you're able to have a safe place to share and to process where a lot of times people like your family members might not understand no. that sort of weight that you experience.
1: And from my like, experience too, I anytime I do try and talk about it with anyone outside the field, they, it's almost as if they experience it themselves. Yeah, and I yeah. and they have such a reaction where I'm like, no, that's not where I wanted this to go. Right. Like yeah. It's more so... Just debriefing yourself and processing, I remember. Mm-hmm. And not only, like, ch- being able to go towards just our Child Life staff, because I think our Child Life staff is amazing. I know for me in the ER, um, there might not be other Child Life specialists on staff when I'm there at night. And I do remember, actually, it was my most memorable bereavement case here. Mm-hmm. I actually was able to present an M&M here at the hospital on it. But we had a um, baby come in who had um, died... They weren't sure what the cause was. Uh, The mother just found him in the crib unresponsive and they brought him to the hospital and they were unfortunately able to revive him. But all of a sudden I just found out, hey, three-year-old little sister is coming in and she's coming to say goodbye to her brother. And it's just like that. Like they're coming in, they're 10 minutes out, get everything ready. So it's kind of like, okay, you kind of go through the basics and – Even as a child life specialist who's passed their certification exam, been in the ER for years, been through many bereavements, you have that moment kind of of panic Mm -hmm. of like, okay, Mm -hmm. I need to get all my stuff together. What, like looking at development, looking at, okay, what a three-year-old's cognitive abilities are, to understand what death is, to how to introduce her to the room, talking to the parents, being able to give advice of using the D words, you know, death, dead. I know it sounds so harsh, but being able to utilize those words to make sure it's concrete but it's so important because with the nursing staff along with the physician and the chaplain it was one of the most meaningful interventions I've ever been able to do where this child was able to understand that her brother had gone to heaven and and I think it's also so important to be able to provide Activity to and let the children know that it's okay to play. And once I was able to let her know that she was going to see a lot of different emotions in the room, she might see some tears, she might see some anger, she might hear some people say some things that might not feel very good, but it was okay for her to play. She immediately had, there was a difference in her face and she wanted me to bring the bristle blocks out. So I brought bristle blocks out and little people and she actually unprompted made a tower up to heaven and had the people in that I gave her were her mother, her father, her baby brother, and herself going up the tower to heaven to go visit her brother. And it was the most powerful moment I've ever That's experienced so within crazy. the field. But it just shows where this child was at, where she was ready to process. Mm-hmm. And it was as simple as that as giving her free play yeah. Opportunities, child led, child directed, and it was so meaningful. And our, our family friend was there, and she just said, "Oh my gosh, is this happening right now?" Yeah, it, I, bet. I mean it was got to be insane to witness. It was in, it was incredible. I mean, mm-hmm. and there's so many emotions that I'm going through too. Right. Where I'm like, "Oh my gosh, like this is so powerful. This is so moving." And she just kept having to have that reminder, and she kept mm-hmm. saying like my baby brother died today and just Mm. telling her like like, verbalizing yes but it's incredible because every bereavement experience is going to be so different but you're bringing the same skills to each one Mm -hmm. it's every one is going to be very unique but you have to just trust yourself trust your skills and just go in and know that whatever you're doing is going to be very meaningful for those family members that is
0: such such truth danielle and i think something that the two things i have to remind myself. Um, the first thing, I think, is reminding myself to not try to project myself into the situation. Yes. In order, That's, I think, more for my style in order for me to remain put together. Yes. Because the second that I start to think, oh, my gosh, what if this was my child or yes. what if this was my husband or what if this is my mom that's dying, then I lose it like mm-hmm. and I think for the sake of that family like you want to be empathetic to their situation and a person like it's okay even right. I think to tear up at different times but if you're crying more than the family when and they're, they're taking need care to of you solely, yeah <laughs> exactly then uh, probably something is imbalanced mm-hmm. and I think also I have learned that um it's okay to excuse yourself when you need to yes that like if you're even not sure what to even do or say or where to go. I mean you don't want to necessarily like be like I have to leave now, right? Mm-hmm. As they just poured out everything. But I think giving yourself some sort of out is okay when you need it if you find yourself having a hard time coping. Um for me that's looked like, you know what, um this is let's create a plan for how we want to do legacy making and I'll be yes. back. I'm gonna go grab a few things and I'll be back. Um even if I have the stuff there but I just need a moment to collect myself. I think that's been helpful. And, and I know just hearing from my supervisors at different times and even from our coworkers, mm-hmm. I think something to remember is that Nothing that you say will make it better, and nothing that you say will make it worse. So really, you know, of like, I like that. It's not like anything that you say is going to be like, oh, you know what? I'm actually not so sad that they died anymore. Right, Or right. what is the goal there? Right, totally. And I'm sure I'm sure people could test that and say something extremely insensitive that could make their day a little well, bit yeah. worse. Yeah. <laughs> but I think if you rely on your skills as being an empathetic listener mm-hmm. and really trying to just be supportive, then...
1: You really can't go wrong. The families feel feed off of your uh, whatever empathy, whatever attitude you come in with. Mm-hmm. They feel it, and they're so grateful. Yeah. Um, you can just see it on their face. When I mean, when I walk out of those situations, I know in the previous podcast I said the most challenging cases for me are the most rewarding. It's because you mm-hmm. walk away, and you look at the family's faces, and they don't even need to say anything to you, but right. you know You know the impact that whatever intervention you were able to provide, what that did for them. And when they look back, they're going to remember what you were able to do. They might not remember exactly what you said, but they will will remember how you made them feel. Yes, that is so true. So, so true. And I... I think that's a really good point
0: to even kind of conclude on with our bereavement is, like, this idea that even though I think when we get that call for bereavement that it can create so much, like, oh, my gosh, am I really, like, the one for this? Like, is it, like, can I really do this? Right. But then, yet somehow, like you said, like, those are the times when it feels like such an honor Mm -hmm. to share in this very intimate and vulnerable and hard moment with this family and, like, be in the trenches with them and help support these kids so that they're taking care of her and then just kind of lay the foundation for how do you grieve as a family well thank you all so much for submitting your questions i know we didn't get to all of them but we really appreciate the the thoughts that you guys had and the wonderings and look forward to hearing your feedback on this episode danielle thank you so much for being with us today too it was such a pleasure to have you on the podcast once again, and thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. I am so, awesome so
1: glad that you asked me to come back. I love doing oh, this.
0: Oh, man. Well, maybe you'll hear from Danielle some other time. Maybe. No. <laughs> but in the meantime, may we all continue to learn by reflection, unite for support, and equip students to advance the child life profession. Thank you guys so much for listening. Be sure to rate and review the podcast if you can after you're done listening. And um, we'd also, again, love to hear from you what you guys think of today's episode. Take care.